Crossway Church Sermon Audio. We wanted to gain good clarity by looking at both sides of the coin. So two Sundays ago we looked at what the mission of the church is, and then last week we looked at um, what it's not. And by looking at both sides, it, it helps move us to a sound understanding of what the mission of the church is, because it's not everything, but it is something uh, very big, very powerful, very important. And we want a sound practice of engaging with the mission of the church. So again today, let's review the mission of the church. Let's see what it is. There are some good definitions out there. Came across another one just recently, but you may remember that we're using the one from Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert, and here it is. The mission of the church is to go into the world and make disciples by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit and gathering these disciples into churches that they might worship the Lord and obey his commands now and in eternity to the glory of God the Father. So there's the definition, but of course we're not, we're not asking anyone to memorize it, and we're, we're not elevating this definition to the level of Scripture, but it really does capture the elements uh, of the mission of the church we think quite faithfully. And so there's the definition, and uh, what I suggested last week is that we keep in mind um, the essence of it. So, the essence of this definition, the core of it, is that the mission of the church is to make disciples for Jesus Christ, or disciples of Jesus Christ. The mission of the church is to make disciples. That should be clear, right? We can all remember that. And if we keep that in mind, we're going to be on a good track to begin with. mission of the church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. It's also good to remember, once you have that clear, that summary, to make disciples, it's also good to remember that there's other important components that help us understand what disciple-making entails. So it's good to remember the mission of the church is to make disciples, but what does that entail? And that's where these other uh, components that are in the, in the definition, they help flesh that out. So it's significant because otherwise disciple-making can be turned into just about anything, right? So that's why we want to, ha- want to keep these in mind. So I recommend that we all remember the mission of the church is to make disciples And that entails things like going into the world. So going. And it it entails things like declaring the gospel. Notice the importance of declaration or proclamation. So it's not just a life lived, although that's certainly part of it. But it's also proclaiming Christ. And it, it includes components, the component of undertaking this endeavor, recognizing we need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so that when we step into disciple-making, we can expect the Holy Spirit of God to accompany us and to empower us and to help us. And that's a great and encouraging promise. It also includes gathering these disciples into churches. So planting churches. And it includes doing all this to the glory of God, which is the very purpose of our being and existence. All right, so there's a definition, and we've reviewed that. Thank you for uh, reviewing that with me. Let's, uh, and then we take last week, we talked about some unhelpful notions, and so we've gained some clarity. 
So today is about how we put it into practice. What do we do with this clarity? And that's our focus for today. So one of the challenging aspects of understanding our participation in the mission of disciple-making is that it does happen on a few different layers of our lives. It's not just one thing or just another thing. It happens on a few different layers. So that's why I'm proposing we address those layers today. And I think if we think about it that way, it can be helpful for our engagement. Let me say it like this. Work out how you will help to make disciples by thinking through a few layers of participation. So we're going to work this out. We're going to work out how we make disciples by thinking through a few layers of our participation. And you may have noticed that I used the expression or I qualified making disciples here by saying we help to make disciples rather than simply make disciples. I'm saying it that way because even when we are the primary human agent involved in making disciples, we know that we need others, right? We know that others are involved. Even if someone were to say to us, you were the main person involved in me becoming a Christian and growing in Christ, even then, we know there's a lot more going on. First, we know that the words and examples of other people are in the mix that God has used in saving us and making us disciples and then working in others. And... um, Even when that disciple doesn't realize it and they're attributing everything to one person, we know there's more people involved. And that's that's profound. That's glorious. And then also, second, we know that the Lord himself is always the great disciple maker. And he's the one giving the increase. We see that basic principle at work in the apostle Paul. Is this flashing back here like it's flashing on my screen out there? No? Good, good, okay, thanks. I was about to have a seizure with all the flashing happening here. I thought, I hope that's not happening to everybody else, but thank you, Kurt. (laughs) Okay, so here's Paul speaking of his work and the work of Apollos, and and, and he's talking about making disciples, his work of making disciples. Paul says this, I planted It says, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he knew plants nor he who waters is anything, all the human agents, but only God who gives the growth. This attitude, when it comes to disciple making, and you might even be thinking, boy, I just want to help make disciples. I haven't even thought about the results of it, but they're going to come you know, powered by the Spirit, we're going to engage this, and the Lord's going to make disciples. And when He does use us in that process, we should give the glory to God, right? We should remember that we're working for the Lord's glory. He's the one doing the real work. He's the one making the work productive. It's like uh, uh, growing, a, you know, a tomato plant. You may plant the plant. You may weed the plant. You may fertilize the plant. You may water the plant. But it's still a miracle that tomatoes are produced. Something that's fruitful and we can be nourished by and be filled by. It's the Lord who does the work, just like that. Okay, we want to work out 
how we're going to help make disciples. And we're going to do that by thinking through a few different layers of participation. So we're going to participate in this. Let's think through those layers. The first layer is being a faithful church. This is all together. So we're, we're going to engage this as individuals, but not just as individuals. We want to be a faithful church. And we may have the idea that there are good or bad churches out there, and certainly that's true, but it's even more nuanced than that because even good churches can be more or less faithful to the Lord. And we see this quite clearly in the book of Revelation, uh, in chapters 3 to 4 of Revelation. It's there that the Lord, through the apostle John, gives reports to seven churches in the Asia Minor region. And I'm just going to read a portion of the first one to get the idea. So, Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. John, by the Spirit, writing to one of the churches. Verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. That's the Lord Jesus. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And you can see, this church is commended for some rather profound traits. Like they're working hard, they're toiling, they're doing so patiently, they're enduring patiently, they're bearing with. They're, they're not bearing with those who are evil, but they're bearing with the work that they're doing, and they're not growing weary in the work that they're doing, including not bearing with those who are evil. They're, they're saying no to the evil, they're saying yes to the righteous, and they're not growing weary. But even though they're commended for this, they're also solemnly warned. What are they warned about? They're warned about abandoning the love they had at first. So their desire for the Lord, their single-mindedness, single-heartedness for the Lord, they're warned about the abandonment of that. And you can see this, uh, this church is, is, is commended, but it's also warned, and then a remedy is given. What's the remedy? They're to remember what they were prior, and they're to repent and then they're to live a life and do the work that reflects loving the Lord. And here's the thing. If they don't respond, Lord help us, then they're in some serious trouble. The Lord says he'll come and remove their lampstand from before his presence. You see what the church is called to. Can you see how critical it is for the church as a whole to be faithful to the Lord? Our gospel mission does not begin with what we do. It begins, 
It doesn't begin, I should say it this way, it, it doesn't begin with doing, it begins with being. It's who we are. And not just who we are as individuals, it's who we are as a church. Mission doesn't begin with I. It begins with we. Not the individual Christian, but the church. Is our church a faithful church? Faithfulness as a church involves, first and foremost, our Savior, the Lord Jesus. He's the Son of God, come to save man. He died and then He rose, and He rose to the forgiveness of sins and the defeat of death by His undefeatable life. And now all who trust Him have life forever in His name. If you have not trusted Him yet, today, Trust him today and know the forgiveness of sin and life is in his name and be baptized in him. Being faithful also involves teaching everything that our Lord commanded us. So the Bible is the word of God. It is everything that we need and all of it is needful to us. We must teach sound doctrine so that we can be built up on the truth. So there's faithful teaching, there's sound doctrine, but there's also faithful doing or sound doing. We encourage one another, we participate together. And when it comes to faithfulness as a church, obviously we have to be exalting Christ and teaching the Scriptures faithfully, but that works its way into practice. I just want to give you one quick example to show how practical all of this can be and engages all of us. Are we a faithful church? You may have heard the term seeker-sensitive. goes back a ways now, several uh, decades. It's a philosophy of doing church that places emphasis on what new people to the church experience. That's the idea of seeker-sensitive. The idea is to make the Sunday gathering as comfortable to people that are new to the church as possible. And that sounds good, right? But it does depend how far you take it. It's a question of who the church is for. And so depending on how far you take it, and I think what happens in the American evangelical culture at large, so much so that churches are involved in this today, they don't even, they never even heard the term seeker-sensitive. They don't even know where the philosophy comes from. And yet they find themselves engaging in these ways. It tends to result in a massive emphasis on excellence in production. The production quality is what gains the most importance. And you could tell this, you could see this in the way that most church buildings are designed today. Most church buildings have their main meeting room, the auditorium, is designed as a studio or a black box. So no windows, no outside light, and a prime emphasis on sound absorption throughout the room. Video and audio are uh, properly isolated to the degree so that production excellence can be given to those things. And so, for instance, video would be found in another, a separate room altogether so that the video team can work together and not be distracted by the meeting itself. 
And so that's the kind of, of application that comes through something that may seem as simple as a change in philosophy. The problem there is that many of the teachings of the Lord are, in fact, extremely uncomfortable. We're not trying to be uncomfortable on purpose, but being a Christian is not in line with being in the world. What we have to offer is not comfort. What we have to offer is salvation in Christ Jesus. And it takes some discomfort to get through that to, to understand I need that more than anything else. And so an overemphasis on comfort means potential compromise to those teachings. And so an, an emphasis on excellence in production becomes a distraction that lends itself toward performance rather than faithfulness. Now, that's not some big critique of all churches out there that do that. I mean, I, I think it is a critique. Obviously, it's a critique. I think many of those churches seek to be faithful in what they're teaching. And, and what I'm proposing here is not that, not that they're all teaching false doctrine, but rather what they're doing misses the emphasis of faithfulness as a church. And where the problem might come in is not necessarily right now in what's being taught, but what's being taught or, or what the future generations get from the, the emphasis that they're experiencing week after week. What's being caught rather than what's being taught, if I could say it that way. In other words, what's, what's being practiced rather than what's being verbalized. So the question has to be raised in those settings, how much genuine mission is truly happening if, if faithfulness is being compromised. And so then, we want to be something before we do something. We want to be faithful to the gospel. And it has its implications in how we meet and the way we, the, the practice that we have, that we put in place. And so let's, let's break it down for us. How, do, how can we be faithful? How can we connect to mission in our faithfulness? So, of course, sound teaching and practice that's consistent with, with faithful gospel and what it means to be the church and to gather as the church. But also, when people do come to us, when the unbeliever does enter this space, when the outsider does come in, do we greet them? Do we greet them? We've, we've had a reputation for being a tremendous greeting church. I've heard that over the years, and I still hear it to this day. People uh, express gratitude for the way they were greeted. However, there have been times when I've heard that people haven't been greeted. Some people have stayed in spite of not being greeted. And then I've heard from others who, who left because they weren't greeted. And don't get me wrong, I take, I take the criticism, uh, I think you have to contextualize it, there's often much more going on, and many times the expectation is such that uh, you, you, you have to question the person themselves and, and, and qualify their critique. But nevertheless, it all begins with a greeting. So when someone comes, are they welcomed? Are we glad to see them? To the point that we step out of our comfort zone and say to them, hi, my name is so-and-so. What's your name? I'm glad to meet you. Where do you come from? I'm so glad you came today. 
and begin to ask them questions, get to know them. And then beyond greeting them, we want to encourage them with our words, inviting them out to different events, encouraging them to take the gift, you know, when they come, encouraging them if they need prayer to come and seek prayer, encouraging them to engage uh, a, a growth process, maybe the explore course, maybe beyond that, maybe a vital life course, maybe a conversation, maybe a get together. Do we encourage them, take a real interest in them, and then we can engage them more directly. We can meet with them and take an interest in their personal spiritual growth. You see, if we're alive in Christ, we're, we're going to want to step into this mission. And a big part of that is simply the people that come in here. We want to be a faithful church. Are we a faithful church? I believe we are. Can we grow? Of course. Work out how you will help make disciples by thinking through a few layers of participation. That first layer was, was simply being a faithful church. Now we want to engage providential placement. Engage providential placement. And that's just a fancy way of saying, where has God put you in life? Who's he put you around? So, who's, who's in your world? You probably heard a certain statement about missions in one form of, or, or another. It goes like this. Why would you travel across the ocean to witness about Jesus when you won't tell your neighbor about him? Why would you go to a far-flung place that seems exotic or uh, a huge sacrifice. Why would you do that when you won't share him with those that God's already put in your world? And I, I think that statement can be leveraged unhelpfully, by the way. I think it can be a, a bit of brute force. Uh, it can be a little unfair, but it does make a good point, right? I mean, it gets to this idea that before looking uh, far away, let's look closer and recognize that that those in our life right now is not an accident. It's not accidental. We believe God is sovereign, right? And being, being sovereign, that means God rules over everything, including our lives. And in his rulership, he has providentially directed our lives. He's put his hand on us. We can't escape his hand. So therefore, where has God, in his providential wisdom and goodness, where has he put you? Who has he put around you? Who has he put in your life? There's a reason he's placed us so intentionally, and part of that reason is to testify about Jesus to some of those people. Here's a good example of this principle. You remember the story of Joseph. It's a powerful story. It's a story of, of this, this favored son who falls out of disfavor with his brothers to the point where they envy him and hate him. And so they, they sell him into slavery and he goes through much torment and trouble and he, he ends up in prison in Egypt. He's in prison in Egypt. It's a cellar. It's a terrible place. And he's there and some of the other prisoners have, have a dream. And so Joseph settling in himself. This is where God has him. As terrible as the scenario is, as innocent as he's been, and yet as terrible as the scenario is, he says, God, put me here. 
And so he ministers to the people in front of him. He testifies to the people in front of him. He makes disciple of, of the people near him. And so Genesis chapter 40, verses 5 through 8. I'll read it for you. If you want to turn there, Genesis chapter 40, verses 5 through 8. Says, and one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. Verse 7. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, Why are your faces downcast today? He takes an interest. He seeks to care. Verse 8, they said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. You see how he testified to God? He says, I, he says your situation, you're troubled because you don't know where all of life comes from, where the interpretation of life comes from. You don't understand where reality gets its meaning, its structure, its purpose. I can help you with that. I know God. Let me tell you. And look what he does. He steps in with faith. And when he steps in with faith to testify about God, what is he doing there? He's trusting that God will meet him. In other words, he knows the Holy Spirit will empower him for this witness. He steps in. He witnesses to Christ Jesus. He seeks to make disciples. And it may seem to us that Joseph, his story may not apply so readily to our lives. It does. But we can still find other examples. You remember that after Jesus ascended, goes up to heaven in a cloud. The Holy Spirit visited the Christians and the church was born in Jerusalem and it flourished at first until Stephen the deacon was stoned and persecution broke out against the Christians. And then you have this in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. I'll give you a second if you want to turn there. Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. In Acts 8, Verse 1, it's right after the execution, the stoning of Stephen. And it says in verse 1, And Saul approved of his, that's Stephen's, execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Let's pause there. That sounds pretty bad. That sounds like something you wouldn't want to be a part of. But look at verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Went about preaching the word. So, so imagine, persecution breaks out. One of their number has been killed in a terrible manner. And now there's, there's, there's posses tracking down Christians. And yet they say to themselves, well, God has us here. Here's where he's placed me providentially in his sovereignty. This is what he's determined. 
And with his good and loving hand, he's placed me in this part of the world, and there are these people around me. And so what do they do? They share Jesus Christ. That takes faith and a belief that the Lord would be with them. And so we immediately see the gospel spreading because of this, because of their, their, their worshipful recognition of the providence of God and their engagement with making disciples. We immediately see the gospel spreading from Jerusalem to, to Judea and Samaria. They're testifying to Jesus wherever they are, and so it is for us. So then, our first call is not to people far away, but to the people right in front of us. And my guess is that this is not breaking news for most of us. Nevertheless, it seems helpful to remind us, right, and to return to this subject once in a while. It's it's pretty wonderful to stop and think for a moment, yeah, who is in my life? Who do I work with, and who do I go to class with, and Who do I see at the store? And who do I see in the neighborhood? Who are these people that God's placed around me? How might I engage the mission of disciple-making right where I am at? I think we begin by doing just this, thinking it through and praying about it. You know, after a few disappointments in this regard, like, well, I've tried that. You know, it's easy to conclude, it's just not for me. It's easy to say, I'm not going to do that again. But we're all called to engage the mission of the church. We're all called to engage disciple-making. We're all to testify to Jesus Christ. So don't be discouraged. Because you've had a a discouraging moment before or something that, that didn't end in someone becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ, it doesn't mean that God's misfired in where he's placed you providentially. And sometimes I think we misdiagnose the problem. Often the issue is simply one of timing. It's just that it's not right now, but it might be down the road. Have you ever had that in your experience? I've had that in my experience where I testified to someone. They wanted nothing to do. I felt embarrassed and humiliated. And I went away thinking, well, I don't know that I'll do that again. Or I certainly don't want to feel that way again. And I've had this multiple times. Or had that person return to me years later and and excitedly tell me about how they came to Jesus. And realizing, okay, I didn't get to, I didn't get to see the, the fruit come to harvest. I didn't get to harvest myself, but I got to plant and I got to water. And that's all part of it. Sometimes it's just timing. There are few greater joys than to be involved in the mission of Jesus Christ, the mission of the church. And don't forget that the church has partnered with you in this endeavor. This church, your church, is partnered with you. We want to encourage one another in our disciple-making, our evangelism efforts. And that's why we have occasional guest events. Occasions like Cheesesteak Sunday or the Independence Celebration or Christmas Eve. We don't change anything in the meeting really when we do that. Uh, Just maybe little changes, but not really. We don't change it based on who will be there or who won't be there. We're not seeking to change the message that's preached from God's Word, applied to our lives to make people be comfortable. 
But what we do want to do is make it easier for all of you to invite people to come to church with you. That's the idea of those occasions. That's why we do it. We offer other helps too. Christianity Explored, like we offered this past summer, to help interested people learn more about the Christian faith and to see the beauty of Jesus and to come to him and become his disciple. The current apologetics course in Vital Life is another example of seeking to stir up and equip God's people. By the way, praise the Lord, I think about 60 of you or over 60 of you are going to the Vital Life class on apologetics. Praise God for how you're engaging that. I've seen that again and again as we've offered classes to build us up and to stir us up in making disciples. We want to support one another in our efforts to make disciples. Let's continue to work out how we will help make disciples by thinking through a few layers of participation. Let's look at the third layer of participation in the mission of the church, and that's supporting missionary efforts. We want to be a faithful church. We want to engage in the providential placement that God has us in, and we want to support missionary efforts. So we want to be something before we do something. That, that, by the way, is not an excuse to be irresponsible. And we want to go from there. And we come to supporting missionary efforts. We want to look around us and as a church support the efforts of those going and those making disciples in, in all, all kinds of places in this world. Some near, some far, some kind of regional or some a few states away or some overseas and at a complete distance to us. We want to support those efforts. And one of the good realities of mission work in our lifetimes is that there is more mission work being done than we can possibly support. Thank God that He is unlimited because we can look at the missionary effort and we can see all these efforts happening and we can say, oh my goodness, these are all worthy of support, but we can't possibly support them all, right? It's kind of like the need itself. We look at the missionary need and we say, oh my, I could never meet all, our church could never meet all these needs. A denomination could never meet all these mission needs. We can't meet all the needs because we're limited. These are overwhelming realities. But they remind us, they serve to remind us that God is the one who is really fulfilling the mission. He uses us as means in the fulfillment of his mission. But we trust him in all of our doing. It's so reassuring and comforting to know he's the one doing the the final work, the real work, the full work, even as he uses us in that work. That's very reassuring. That's the kind of thing that reassures me that when I go on a trip, I think to myself, what do I have to offer? But I can be reassured knowing God's doing his work. As I offer myself, and I know the Lord will use me. Now, we have limitations, but it's not only our limitations that, we have, that, that we're bumping up against. There's something else. And, and the, the, our limitations and this other thing, they call us to a vetting process in regard to what we can support, what we will support. Let me reveal that other limitation, and then we can talk about vetting. Look at what Paul says about his, missionary, about his ministry at a time when he's in jail. 
He's in jail for, dis- for disciple making. Look at Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. So Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. Paul is in jail. He's there because of his testimony to Jesus. He's there because of his missionary work. He's there because he's trying to make disciples. Philippians chapter 1, verse 12 and following. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, he says, and I will rejoice. It's kind of surprising. People can preach Christ, even Christ. They can proclaim Jesus out of some very bad motives. And yet even when they do, the Lord will still accomplish his purposes. And that is a very encouraging thought. You can imagine how much it encouraged Paul since he's in prison because of this whole thing. He's in prison at the moment, and yet he knows that the gospel is going forward in the hands of God no matter what. Even though there is the motive of, for instance, selfish ambition, people preaching Christ from envy. And we should note, that is not something that just happened a long time ago. That happens to this day. It's something, it's a category that you and I need to be aware of. Some people are preaching Christ out of a bad motive. And that's something we should be aware of. And while it's certainly true that God uses even the sin of the rebellious to accomplish his purposes, like preaching out of envy or a selfish ambition, that doesn't mean that even though God uses it, it doesn't mean that we should underwrite it, right? If possible, we should evaluate a mission effort to be as certain as we can that we're supporting a sincere, competent, and effective ministry. We pastors especially feel this Because if we're going to ask you to give, that's the position that's part of our leadership, is we ask you to give to certain mission efforts, to support certain mission efforts. And if we're going to ask you to give, knowing that it requires generosity and sacrifice, you're working, you're saving, and now you're sacrificing and giving, we know that if you're going to do that, we want to make sure that what we're giving to is not a waste. We want your mission investment to give a great return in the making of disciples as best as we're able. And none of us know the future, and so our vetting processes are not airtight, but they should be good faith efforts to make certain that what we give substantially goes to the disciple-making work. And so vetting is important on those couple of levels. There's our limitations. We can't give to everything. And then there's the integrity of the work that we are supporting, we want to make sure that we can commend it to you when we ask you to give to that. 
So a big part of that integrity side of the vetting that we're looking to be uh, faithful in, we want that to be, them to be faithful in biblical principles. We want to come alongside and support mission work that we're looking for a commitment from those involved to biblical truth. One of those principles is church planting. Church planting is one of the ways we want to see what we're giving to. We want to make sure that they have that at their heart. So for many decades, some evangelists went all over the world holding huge revival events. Others have sought to do things like bring the Jesus film everywhere they could. Others have done musical tours, having concerts. Others have simply sought to be a blessing like we talked about last week. We could go on. Now, I'm not saying all of that is bad. In fact, some of that could be very helpful in conjunction with the local church. So please don't misunderstand. What I am saying is that the biblical pattern is that part of the mission of disciple-making includes gathering new disciples into a church, and therefore, generally speaking, church planting must be part of the strategy involved. The people doing the mission should have the local church as part of their heartbeat because the Lord Jesus died for the church and instituted the church and, and gave structure to the church. It's a vital part of disciple-making. And you see that pattern throughout the New Testament. Everywhere God's people went, they start churches. You see it in Acts. You see it in the ministry of Paul. You see it in Antioch and Samaria before Paul starts his missionary journeys. You see it after the book of Acts and all that, in that all of the epistles that are written are written for the upbuilding of the church in some manner. And you see it in Revelation when you realize that the entire book of Revelation is built for the edification of God's people. That's the point of it. It's not just a, sort of a, a, a predictor of future events. Now it's for the edification of God's people right now so that we can see what Jesus has done for us and the hope that we have in him. You can see that in Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, where John writes, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. The local church needs to be a huge part of the global mission. And it has to be part of our disciple making. So let me give you an example. Doug Plank and Josiah Willis just returned to us from a, a, a trip to support a church plant in Pretoria, South Africa. We all gave to support that effort and it bore fruit and they brought back a positive report to us. I wanted to hear about everything that church was doing and what its leaders were like, their character, what their convictions are. And so uh, Doug and Steve and I talked about all of that. The church there is faithfully preaching Christ. They've appointed elders. They're discipling and raising up more elders. The church is established in its earliest stages, and they desire to replicate church planting into the villages west of Pretoria, where, where according to their knowledge, there are zero churches in that area of South Africa. This could be a mission that we support again in the future, or we may even take up support of them in an ongoing way. Similar principles guide our support efforts with churches and church planters in Boston and the Bahamas and San Jose and, and this Asian country where I'm heading off to this week. We want to see, we want to come alongside uh, 
biblically grounded disciple-making efforts, mission efforts. Work out how you will help make disciples by thinking this whole thing through on a few different layers. We've considered our participation in that we need to be a faithful church. We've considered our participation in, in, in looking who's around us, where, who has God put us among. And we're considered our participation at the layer of supporting other missionary efforts, giving and supporting those efforts. We also want to look at the layer of going ourselves, going ourselves. It's good to remember that from a biblical point of view, we are at the ends of the earth. We've talked about this before, or at least we're close to the ends of the earth. The gospel goes out of Jerusalem and spreads farther and farther and it, until it comes to these shores, makes its way inland a little bit, and here we are in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. It comes to us. People went from other places. They left their homes, bringing the gospel of Christ to make disciples here. In other words, we are the result of others going in the name of the Lord to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. Have you ever tried to do a family tree? Maybe you've used Ancestry.com or some service like that. It is incredible how much information these services can pull together as you, you look and see who is before me, who came before me. And, and, and it's amazing how far back you can see your family tree. It's worth actually putting in some time on these efforts, the family tree effort, to just appreciate God's providential direction over your very existence. No matter how good that family tree information is, we're always at some point going to hit a roadblock two, three, four, five, six generations back. We're going to get to a point and we simply can't go back any farther. No information exists. Only the Lord knows our full lineage. In a way, it's like looking down a misty road. You can see so far, but, then all, but everything else beyond a certain point is just, it's just hazy. It's not clear. You can't make it out. In a similar way, none of us can comprehensively account for how the gospel came to us. Only God knows our full spiritual lineage. One person was made a disciple, and that disciple was involved in making another disciple, and that disciple was involved in a third generation discipleship project, and so on and so forth until the gospel came to us through people who carried that precious treasure in jars of clay, who heard about Jesus Christ and believed and matured in him to the point where they realized God is calling me to go. And they went. And we learned about Jesus. We do not know who all left their homes to bring Jesus Christ to others but we praise the Lord that they did. Someday we may know their names and their faces, but the point for today is that God used many who went, they went to bring Christ home to us. They left their homes to bring Christ home to us. You see, some must go. Some must go and take the witness of Jesus into the world. Just like the church in Antioch that sent out Paul and Barnabas, we must send some too. And it wouldn't make sense for us all to go, right? If all went, there would be no church here. That doesn't make sense. And if all go all the time, there would be no church anywhere. 
And that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't biblically make any sense at all. No, most must stay. Most must stay. Usually most must stay unless there is some kind of a persecution that breaks out. But some must go if we are to be faithful to the mission of the church. Going can be a short trip. It can be a week or two or three. Some must go for much longer. Consider Paul and the other missionaries that went out from Antioch. Their, their first trips were a, a few months long or several months long. And then they uh, came back home. Then they went out again. That time they went longer. And then they came back home again. And then they went out again. And so even the Apostle Paul had sort of a home church and a home base. And he would go out and come back to it. And so that can be part of it. It can be going for a few weeks or it can be going for months or it can be going for a few years. But like Paul, like other missionaries throughout church history, they go out and they come back. Going can take a couple of different forms. And one of those forms is church planting itself. We hope as a church to be directly involved in church planting. Lord willing, over the next two to three years, we want to be involved in church planting. We want to plant churches in areas that make sense in our county and beyond. And when that time comes for us to plant a church, some of us will have to go. It's not far, but it means we might not see each other as much. We won't see each other on Sunday mornings, per se. Some of us will have to go. And even that separation will be hard for some of us. But if some of us don't go, we can't plant a church. We can't plant a disciple-making church. This kind of made me think of, of Paul, although this is a, obviously a, 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 a bigger situation by degree, but you kind of get the heart of it. Then Paul answered, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. So Paul was separating from brothers and sisters, and they, they were quite certain he was going to be in danger by going back to Jerusalem. But he knew this was his calling, and he went And they wept. And then they settled it and said, this is what God's called them to. We can trust the Lord. It's easy to say we want to plant a church. But we have to count the cost too, don't we? Some must go. Some of our best must go. And the way to look at this is, if it's good to the Holy Spirit and to us, then the sacrifice will be worth it all. Because more disciples will be made. And our church can be more and more involved in disciple making. Another form of going is when God raises some of our members to be missionaries, to go afar. And I do believe the Lord does want to do this among us. We know at some point the Lord will situate us to raise up missionaries. In some ways we've already done this. For instance, Keith Bunting... Uh, many years ago now, was raised up among us to become an elder, and he went to serve with Cedric Moss and Nassau, Bahamas, and now he's a senior pastor of a church in Florida. That is us engaging the gospel-sending mission to make disciples in other places. That's us sacrificing one of our best. I still with, wish 
uh, uh, Keith and Kristen were here for many reasons. I still miss them, but I'm so glad they're there. And so in preparation for this, we should recognize that raising up a missionary is a process, okay? It's a process. In other words, it's not just a person feeling inside themselves that God's called them to it. If someone considers themselves worthy on that basis alone, we know that the probabilities are disaster. We know that. Not necessarily disaster, but the probability is pretty high that it's disaster, and we've seen those kinds of situations. Much like the raising up of a pastor elder, a missionary should be raised up through the local church, and it will take years. That seems simple and straightforward enough, given the cost. It would seem like that idea of a process through the local church would be fairly obvious. Keep in mind that even the Apostle Paul had a years-long process. This has much to do about the knowledge of a person than about expertise. Our time is fascinated with expertise. Expertise has its place, but expertise is not the final say. And many times those that claim to be experts are not expert at all. Hence, process. Even the Apostle Paul had a years-long process. After his conversion, he did preach right away, appears in the Damascus area, but he didn't go on his first missionary journey till about 10 to 12 years after his conversion. The goal of a vetting process is not to keep someone out of ministry unnecessarily or to slow down the ministry that must happen unnecessarily. It's the opposite of that because a failed missionary immensely complicates mission immensely complicates mission. So we will use a vetting process when the time comes. And in many ways, we are already in it. My friends, we have to work out how we will help make disciples by thinking through a few layers of participation. I want to ask Joel to come and the ushers to begin passing out the communion elements. We're going to finish today by coming to the Lord's table and and how Uh, appropriate it is to do so. The Lord gave himself so that we can become his own. We were made disciples and now we engage with him in the process, in the ministry, in the mission of making disciples. If that is our calling, we need to be aware of what that means for us at that personal level, at that level of character and being at the church level, all together, at the supporting level, and at the going level. We can and we should participate on all these levels as the Lord enables us. And I'm recommending that we each think through our participation in disciple-making. But I do think a summary might be helpful. Let me say it this way. You and I should have an attitude that, that basically presents itself in a, in, in a phrase something like, or in a question, something like, what can I do to help? What can I do? So when we hear about an opportunity to be faithful in the local church and to build it up that way, we should recognize it's not just about being a good sport. It's about strengthening all the disciples here and helping to make the disciples by simply being a faithful church. Its mission is intertwined 
with our very existence and being. And when we have the opportunity to, to look around us and see who's in our lives, we should, we should have that, that, uh, that mentality that, if boy, if there's an opportunity with someone in my life to testify to Jesus and to step into making disciples, let me take that. What can I do? What can I do in the disciple-making process? And when you hear at church the, the, that there's going to be a mission offering or an opportunity to pray for missionaries or to support a church plant, you can ask yourself, what can I do? And no one's saying, do more than you can do. No, everyone's saying, do what you can do. What's the Lord enabled you to do? Do that. But have that, have that attitude. What can I do? And maybe if we end up planting churches or even sending others, we can ask ourselves then, what can I do? Let, me, let that be my attitude, my response. For more information, head to our website at crosswaypa.org.